Well, I should have known what I was getting myself into when I asked a question with the little ones this morning. You never know what kind of answer you're going to get when you ask a question. And, uh, this morning, I want us to start thinking about uh, an interaction that our Lord had with a lawyer who was asking questions and maybe asked questions and got answers that weren't the ones he was expecting. Uh, once there was a, an expert in religious law who had come to Jesus to double-check his understanding of the law. And this lawyer asked Jesus what he must do in order to gain eternal life. Jesus said, what's written in the law, lawyer? You tell me, how do you read it? And the lawyer answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said, you have answered correctly. Let that sink in for the moment. That is the correct answer. The whole law is summed up that way. Love God with all that you are, and love your neighbor. But that lawyer asked one more question. Luke 10.29 says that desiring to justify himself, he asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? He was looking to double-check his work, to ease his conscience, to know that he had done everything he was required to do to be good enough. And instead of an easy answer, Jesus told him a story, which I'm going to retell and modernize a little bit for us this morning. A certain man from Wetaskiwin was training for a bike rally, and he set out for a 40K ride early one Sunday morning. He was going to ride from Wetaskiwin to Pinoka and back again. He was just on the far side of Musquachese, which I'm sure I mispronounced, when a drunk driver didn't see him and clipped him, sent him flying off the road into a street sign. He was lucky to be alive, but his injuries were serious, probably life-threatening if he didn't receive medical attention soon. He was in no condition to get help on his own. The driver of the vehicle fled the scene. Not long after that, a pastor from Wetaskiwin came driving by. He was booked to do some pulpit supply in a church in Pinoka. He saw the mangled bike and the broken body, and he shook his head at the thought of what had happened. He didn't have his cell phone on him, and he knew that if he stopped to help, he would never be able to keep his commitment to preach. So instead, he said a quick prayer for the cyclist and sped on past. All of his hard work preparing that fresh sermon on compassion that week just couldn't go to waste. He thought he had something really important to say to that church. So hopefully someone else would come along and help that man. As it happened, someone else did come along just a few minutes later. It was a member of that same pastor's church. He had asked her to come to the service in Pinoka and do the special music that day. The pastor had carefully reminded this lady twice during the week to please be on time so that the service runs smoothly. She too saw the rider at the side of the road. She did have a cell phone on her, but she knew it's against the law to call while driving. And she feared if she pulled over, she would be late for the service and break her promise. So she kept on driving while rehearsing the hymn, Make Me a Blessing to Someone Today. Quietly praying that God would do just that in the service that morning. By this point in the story, I'm not going to surprise you to tell you that the third person drove by that morning on the road to Jericho. I mean, the road to Hobima, I mean, Muscochis. The third driver was a man from the reserve. He was driving a brand new pickup truck. And sitting on the passenger seat was a flyer for a special speaker at a church in Pinoka that morning. It it, it promised a life-changing message about the subject of fulfilling God's law by loving your neighbor. The man was excited to attend. He didn't normally go to that church, but he'd been reading the verse on the back of the flyer over and over. It was from James 2, and it said, If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to him, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving the things needed for the body, what good is that? 
This man was deeply intrigued by such a practical message that was going to be preached in that church. So much so that he was very disappointed when he saw the body of the person who had been in the accident and he immediately realized he was going to miss the message that day. Without a second thought, he came to a screeching halt and ran over to inspect the man. This man from Hobima didn't have a cell phone. What he did have was his brand new truck. And the passenger seat was the place where he carefully placed that cyclist, not caring where the dirt or the blood or the mess got. And ignoring all of his plans for that morning, he drove the man straight to the hospital and waited there for most of the afternoon, patiently answering all the questions that he could, that the doctors and the police officers had. There was an urgent need to identify this victim because whatever ID he might have had with him must have been thrown clear in the accident. When the police asked for a careful description of exactly where he found the cyclist so they could go back and look, this man didn't even have to think twice. He said, I'll take you there. I'll help you look. Now I'll ask the same question that Jesus asked when he got to the end of his parable of the Good Samaritan. Which one of the three men proved to be a good neighbor to the one who was in need? The answer is the one who showed him mercy. The one who showed him mercy was his neighbor. And the reason I want us thinking about that famous parable that Jesus told about the Good Samaritan this morning when we come to our passage in 1 Timothy is because it's a passage that deals with the relationship between law and love. That lawyer wanted a clear-cut answer. Sometimes so do we, but Jesus doesn't give that. Instead, Jesus tells a story that ties our stomach up in knots. He reminds us what love really means, and he doesn't let our conscience off the hook. He does all of it while graciously living out for us the kind of love that he urges us towards. And last week we began to hear from the book of 1 Timothy, if you recall. We heard about some of the foundational qualities that should shape who we are and how we function in God's family in the church. And we were reminded, first of all, that our authority should be Scripture. It should be the Word of God. And secondly, that our aim as a church should be, in the words of 1 Timothy 1.5, love. Love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Today, we're going to add to that more things that should shape our thinking as a church. And we're going to add a potential warning about a misuse of Scripture. We do know that Scripture should be our authority, but there are some people who will teach it incorrectly and in such a way that it, it actually prevents us from striving towards that love that comes from a good heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. And this morning, we find a warning against settling for religious hypocrisy and, and instead of pushing on towards that genuine love. So we're going to be looking at 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 6 to 11. If you don't have a Bible, there, there may be a black one somewhere in front of you. If we recently took all the chairs out and put them all back in, so I'm not sure where the Bibles are uh, quite at this time. But, but if you're using one of, the, one of the pew Bibles, you will be looking for page 991, I think. 1 Timothy chapter 1. And if you don't have one of the few Bibles and you don't know where to find it, it's, it's right near the end of your Bible. Short little book called 1 Timothy. Before we read it together, let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have spoken it, that you have revealed it to us, and that it is able to open the eyes of our heart, that it is able to show us what we cannot see apart from your revelation, apart from your grace. So, Father, we pray that as we, as we spend time reading this passage this morning and learning from it, 
We ask that your Holy Spirit would apply it to our hearts, apply it to our lives and our consciences and convict us. Lord, I pray that you would help me to make it clear that you would prevent me from saying anything that's not in keeping with your word and that it would be you, your Holy Spirit, and your word alone that changes us this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So 1 Timothy chapter 1 I'm going to start reading in verse 5. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted." So first of all, Timothy is being warned about certain persons who have swerved away from the pure heart and the good conscience and the sincere faith which come from the gospel. And instead, they're desiring to become what Paul calls teachers of the law. Now just think with me for a second here. All of the challenges that that church in Ephesus faced in the first century, there's a small group of believers who had heard the news that Jesus Christ of Nazareth had died and rose again that this had happened on a cross far away in Jerusalem, that that was God's means to cleanse them from their sins and to redeem them back to the God that made them. These people heard that, and they believed it, and they made a break with their pasts, and they've started a new life, which is entirely at odds with the city and the world around them. There would have been incredible pressure to support not just the religious idolatry of the big pagan temple in Ephesus, But also a huge part of the trade and commerce in the area all had to do with the things the temple was selling. So there would have been first pressure of the old lifestyles and habits that these new believers had, always tempting them back into sin. And there would also have been immense social pressure against taking a stand as a Christian in this place where Timothy was called to be a pastor. The challenges that we face as Christians in Canada here today are not the same as the ones that were faced in Ephesus almost 2,000 years ago but they are not as different as we think either. We do know, we know well what it's like to face pressure to go back to old patterns of sin, to live in a world that either condones or even celebrates many of those sins. And we're seeing more and more cultural pressure to, for Christians to stop taking a stance on what we believe is true, what we believe has been revealed in the Bible. And sometimes the tendency at times like that when the church feels the crunch of a sinful world, sinful, world, sinful world outside, is to go back to the rules, the do's and the don'ts, and to really sort of firm up and shore up our standards, to, to circle the wagons and, and make sure that we know what we know, to, to carefully word a position paper on what we believe is acceptable or not acceptable. The Apostle Paul, who God used to speak through and write this letter that we call First Timothy, which we believe is God's message to the church about how to behave properly in the church and the world, Paul was definitely not one to shy away 
from coming right out and saying what is sinful and what's pure, what's righteous and what's unrighteous. In fact, that list in verses 9 and 10 that we just read through is a pretty typical list for Paul. You'll find very similar lists about what's, what's immoral and what's wrong in the world in, uh, in lots of the other letters that he wrote to other churches. But what's interesting here is that when Timothy's church in Ephesus finds itself surrounded by all those worldly influences and temptations, Paul is clearly warning Timothy in this passage against the kind of thinking that puts the rules and the do's and the don'ts and the law at the center of the church's thinking. The law has a place. We're going to talk in a little bit about what exactly that place is. But those teachers who wanted to attract attention to themselves by endlessly debating all the tiny little nooks and crannies and what you can do and what you can't do and what the exceptions are and what you need to do, humanly speaking, to be right in God's eyes, those teachers in the church were actually guilty of doing the same thing the scribes and the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were doing when Jesus firmly opposed them and pointed a finger at them and said, Hypocrite! You don't know the first thing about who God is. What we read about these teachers that Paul is warning Timothy against is that they make confident assertions without actually understanding the things they're talking about. And the way that happened is this. We learn in verse 6. They have swerved away from the pure heart and the good conscience and the sincere faith that comes from the gospel. They're trying to use the law to ease their conscience some other way instead of letting the gospel take away their guilt. It's what happens when we take what is supposed to be our aim, love, the freely given kind of love that looks like the love God showed us in Jesus, and instead we shy away from that because it's a little bit scary to think what it would be to to really love people that way. And we start asking questions like, aren't there some rules or something we can follow? Isn't there some kind of checklist that we can just fill out to know that we've done it right? One of the charges that Paul makes against these teachers is that what they are teaching does not result in anything, or at least it doesn't result in the right thing. He accuses them in the second half of verse 6 of having wandered away into vain discussion. Their talk just doesn't accomplish anything. If the aim of the church is love, if that's what the church ought to be doing in the end, love, then their fine discussion of rules and laws and what is right, it doesn't get there. It doesn't get to the destination of love. But Paul's careful to point out in verse 8 that the law is good. The fact that the teaching of these so-called experts in the law doesn't produce the result of love, that's not a problem with the law itself. The law is good, we read, when it is used lawfully. So let's just think through some of the ways that the law is good, that there are lawful uses to the good, God, to the good law that God has given us. The first thing is that the law shows us that God's condemnation of sin is just. The law reveals the sinfulness of sin, or God's righteousness in the face of sin. We read, it's important to understand this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane. God's law reminds us that sin is defined, first and foremost, by God. And it's defined as something against God. Sin isn't just something that's inconvenient or unfortunate unfortunate or unwise or harmful or damaging. But sin, sin is all of those things. But more than that, more importantly, sin is against God. It makes a man or a woman an enemy of God. It's an act of rebellion against the holy God who made everything. 
We need God's law revealed in his word to show us just how serious sin is or we're tempted to take it lightly. God is very serious about it. It brings with it a sentence of eternal death because it's an act of treason against the one who gives life. The fact that God's law helps us to see our sin as offensive to him, as something that will certainly be punished, is actually a good thing. It's a good purpose. It's a merciful purpose that God gave that law so that we can know. Because if I don't know how bad things are, I'll never seek help for the situation that I'm in. So the law rightfully shows that God is just and holy and sin is sinful. The second lawful use of the law is this. The law restrains the harmful effects of sin in the world. It puts a cap on how bad things can get. The list that we have in verses 9 and 10 seems kind of on a broad level to reflect the Ten Commandments. The first half, lawless and disobedient, ungodly and sinners, unholy and profane, that sort of calls to mind for us the first half of the Ten Commandments, where relationship with God himself is covered. And what comes next focuses on our relationship with other people. Those who strike their fathers and mothers, murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, All of those words seem carefully chosen to get across the idea that in addition to creating a problem with God, sin creates problems between people. We end up sinning against other people. We end up being sinned against by them. Sin has horrible consequences between people. And God's law, when it's put to use in society, mercifully restrains the extent to which we can harm one another with sin. Again, we see that the law is a good thing. It's a good thing from a merciful God for our benefit. And finally, a third use of the law is that it points the way towards righteousness. Mankind was created in the image of God to enjoy a good relationship with him. And the law, even when it's expressed negatively, like it has to be in the Ten Commandments, and thou shalt not, because of sin, the law still reveals God's good character. And it can be used to instruct us in the kind of holy life that we were originally made to live. It's interesting if you read through Paul's list, it begins at the top in verse 9 with some nicely balanced couplets, and it has uh, some real flow to it, like lawless and disobedient, ungodly and sinners. It starts very organized, and then it kind of switches gears in the middle, and by the end, in the original language, he's actually stopped using commas even. He's just piling one word on after the next, and he reaches the end just barreling through, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel. Paul's suggesting that there are lots of other things he could add to that list, I think. But if you're thinking rightly about things, if you're thinking properly, it's not very hard to know what's on that list, even before you read it. It's contrary to sound doctrine. The world does not, the world out there that doesn't know Christ needs this law, because they're in the dark, and they need to know what sin is and what holiness is. But if you have been redeemed by the blood of Christ, if you have the Spirit of God testifying to the will of God within you, if you have grasped that behind the law there are really two commandments, love the Lord your God with everything you are and love your neighbor as yourself, then you don't need expert legal advice to figure out what the opposite of that love is. You probably already know what belongs on that list. The only time you need to spend picking through finer points of what you can and can't do in your freedom of Christ is if you're looking for a loophole. Most of the time, if we're looking for ways to ease our conscience with the law. 
which is exactly the kind of activity that Paul is warning strongly against. That churches can't go down that route because it prevents you from getting the love. Look back up again to verse 5. This is the aim, I think, of the whole, the, the centerpiece of this whole passage that, that puts it all together. The aim, the purpose behind everything is love that comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. And the law, while it has many good uses, three of which we just talked about, at the end of the day, the law is not going to produce that love. It's the wrong tool for the job. I'm going to give you a little image and, and example, and if it's helpful, take it and use it and keep it, and if it's not, just discard it and keep reading the Word of God, which is, uh, which is the absolute truth and which is really what's going to help you. But, but, but if this helps, if, if you own a vehicle, it probably came with an owner's manual. You know, it's that thing that takes up most of the space in the glove compartment, along with a few other things, which are definitely not gloves. But that manual contains all sorts of useful information about your vehicle. It tells you what all the gauges and meters do. It'll give you specifications on the recommended parts and maintenance and tolerances and, and all sorts of general operational guidelines to run that vehicle well. You can do a lot of good for your vehicle by paying careful attention to what's in that owner's manual. But there is one thing it will not do for you. It won't teach you how to drive. It, it won't get you used to checking your blind spots or, or giving you that feel about what it's like to stay in your own lane when you're first starting out driving and looking out the window to see the lines beside, you know, it, it won't teach you when it's safe to pass around a bend. You can have an intimate knowledge of that owner's manual back to front, but the reason you have the car is to drive. You have the car to get somewhere. And maybe you've read it four times and you're about to read that manual a fifth time, but reading it over and over, if you don't sit down and turn the ignition in the car and shift into drive and give it some gas, you have driven exactly nowhere reading that manual. If the goal of the church is to produce love, if that's what getting somewhere looks like as a church, is to show the kind of love that God showed us, then the law is a little bit like that owner's manual for your car. It helps with a lot of things, but it is not the right tool to move you forward and get you somewhere. Teaching the law on its own does not get to the end of love. Something else is required. And with that in mind... Let's clarify three limitations that the law has. The law condemns, rightfully, it condemns sin, but only the gospel can save. On its own, the law is able to show us just how serious our sins are, but it offers no hope for the sinner. Remember that Jesus actually taught his disciples that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Even the experts of the law, who worked tirelessly to keep every part of it, could not earn their way into heaven through their good works, because they were unable to keep God's perfect standard. There's a helpful passage over in Galatians, and you may be thinking um, that there, there's a lot to do with this message and with our, our reading in Romans chapter 2 today, and it, would be, it might be helpful to go back and read Romans 2 as well. It talks about very similar things, but, but there's a helpful passage in Galatians where Paul talks about this again, this, the difference between keeping the law, which is works, and having faith, which is God's way for sinners to actually be made righteous. And we read this. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for it says the righteous shall live by faith. 
But the law is not of faith. Rather, we read, the one who does them shall live by them. The one who does them shall live by them. That's how the law, that's how the rule book works. The only hope you have under the law is to be perfect. Otherwise, you're under the curse and you're condemned. Which is why it's such good news that Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God, came to live a perfect life in the flesh. He did it. He lived the perfect life. And even though he was God, he was fully human, just like you and I. He kept God's law perfectly, and then he laid down that perfect life willingly as a sacrifice for sins. In the words of Hebrews 9.14, the perfect sinless blood that Jesus shed on the cross is able to purify our conscience from dead works so that we can serve the living God. James Fraser said it beautifully with, with these words. There are only two ways of having a good conscience. One is by never having transgressed, and the other is by having the guilt taken away by the application of the blood of Jesus. Two ways. And since the option of being perfect and never having sinned is not available to you or to I, or to me, that leaves one way to deal with our conscience, to deal with sin, faith in the sacrifice that Jesus made. And it's by hearing about that perfect love which God showed us when he sent his son to pay that price to redeem us, it's about hearing about that that we finally have a solution to that last limitation of the law. Because while the law might be able to restrain sin, it cannot produce love. But the gospel can. The gospel can. And it can because first it shows us what love really looks like in Christ. 1 John 4, 10 and 11 says, In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Notice that before we're given the command to love one another, we're first reminded that we were shown what love looks like when Christ was sent for us. So often what holds us back from loving God and loving others is a weakness in our faith in God's love for us. It can be really, really hard for many of us most of the time, to really, firmly, truly hold on to the fact that God loves me. I don't know about you, but it can be to remember that God loves me, that I'm not just kidding myself or fooling myself, that that's what God has said, that I know it's true, not because I deserve it, but because God has said it. Listen to these words from John Owen. John Owen was affectionately referred to as the Prince of Puritan Theologians. So keep that in mind. He said, the greatest sorrow and burden you can lay on the Father, the greatest unkindness you can do to him is, how do you think that sentence is going to end? How do you think a Puritan is going to finish that sentence? How would you finish that sentence? What would you say is the single greatest thing you could do to wound God? Here's John Owen. I won't interrupt this time. The greatest sorrow and burden you can lay on the Father the greatest unkindness you can do to him is not to believe that he loves you. Refusing to believe that God loves you is the worst thing you could do to God because it is the one thing that misses so completely the very essence of who he is. The law is important because it reminds us of the seriousness of sin. 
But on its own, it's insufficient because it takes the cross to reveal to us the extent of God's love. We have to see and believe and experience God's love as it's shown to us in Jesus before we can ever respond with that kind of love ourselves. See, to really and truly love God and love our neighbor was always what the law required. That was never in question. That was, that was always the point of the law. And even the rabbis and the Old Testament experts in Jesus' day, they all understood that and acknowledged that. It's just that before Jesus came, it wasn't possible. But through faith in him, it is. Jesus said he came to fulfill the law, to fill it up, not to abolish it, not to do away with it, but to fulfill it. And in his perfect life, he did just that. He filled it up to the brim. He lived a life that was exactly what it looks like to perfectly love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength and to love your neighbor as yourself. If you want to know what it looks like, look at Jesus. It's right there. And now for all of those who have repented of their sins and put their faith in Jesus, he offers the gift of his own spirit who comes into our lives and applies the death and resurrection of Jesus to our hearts, to our consciences, so that we can then love the way Jesus loved. That Jesus loves people through us. That's how God's perfect love makes possible that kind of selfless, sacrificial, giving, divine love that the the church is supposed to be uh, issuing forth. If you keep your finger in that passage and turn with me back a little bit to the left to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 13, verses 8 to 10. If someone is a Christian, saved by faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus, this right here is the relationship between love and the law. Perfectly explained. Romans 13, verses 8 to 10. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves one another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covenant, and any other commandment are all summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Remember that Jesus said he came to fulfill the law? Well, he did that first in his own life, and he keeps doing it through the life of his church. The law does not produce love. Christians don't come to love others because they strive to obey the law better. But when Christians do love others because of the love God has shown them, they actually fulfill the law. The law pointed towards a standard of righteousness that men and women had been created for, but that sin had made it impossible to obtain. And then Jesus came and revealed what it looks like in the flesh. Here it is. Here is the fulfillment of the law. And all of this is working towards and, and already illuminating Paul's really interesting way of referring to the gospel at the very end of this passage. In 1 Timothy 1, verse 11, he uses the phrase, the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. Here's the real reason why love is the proper aim of the church. It's not just because love is a word that looks good on bumper stickers or slogans. It's because love reveals nothing less than the glory of God himself. When we believe in the love that he showed us on the cross and we're cleansed of that heavy guilt of sin and set free to start loving other people in the same way, that reveals God's own character. And to willingly, willingly accept anything less than that as our standard, um, to try and squirm away from it or back away from it, 
It, it, it just shies away from everything that God has done for us. But we can do that, and we do do that. We still find ourselves sometimes asking those little lawyer-type questions. Who exactly is my neighbor again, Jesus? What's the minimum I need to do or give in order to live up to that standard of your kingdom? But the gospel of the glory of the blessed God calls us to something bigger, something more wonderful if we're willing to go. I'm going to borrow a a challenging remark that's been made by D.A. Carson that sort of puts it in perspective. It it shows us, helps us think about the way we sometimes shrink away from the, the full meaning of the gospel, what it will really look like if we buy in and go for it. I would like to buy about $3 worth of gospel, please. Not too much. Just enough to make me feel happy. Not so much that I get addicted or anything. I don't want so much gospel that I learn to really hate covetousness and lust. And I certainly don't want so much gospel that I start to love my enemies. Or deny myself. Or contemplate missionary service. No, I want ecstasy. Not repentance. I want transcendence, not transformation. I would like very much to appear good before a bunch of nice, forgiving, broad-minded people, but I myself personally do not really want to love anyone else in a way that will inconvenience me. I would like enough gospel to make my family secure and my children well-behaved, but not so much that I find my my ambitions redirected, my habits examined, or my giving enlarged. Yes, that sounds about right. I would like to have about $3 worth of gospel, please. It sounds ridiculous to put it like that, right? But for most of us, at certain times, it also feels a little bit too familiar. If you find yourself like me, with a very real need to grow in grace and love, then I'm going to urge you, based on the passage we're studying this morning, to do this. Remind yourself of the love of Christ. Check your heart. Ask the Holy Spirit to try you and test you. Ask yourself in hard ways, in new ways, as you pray and as you learn from God's word, ask yourself, do I really believe that God loves me or am I trying some other way? Am I trying some other way to quiet down my conscience or do I really believe God loves me? There's only one way to have a good, clean conscience before God, and that is the blood of Christ. But there are many ways to have a quiet conscience, if you'll just settle it, settle for numbing it in some other way. Just remember this. There is no sin so heavy or vile that the blood of Christ is not enough to cover it completely. And there is no sin so insignificant that any other cure will do. So daily... Constantly, let's remind ourselves of God's love on the cross. We can't clean our conscience any other way. Let's pray. Father, you've shown your love to us in your Son. We ask this morning that you move in us, that you open the eyes of our heart. Move in us so that we respond to what you've shown us with thanksgiving and with faith and with love. I pray for all those gathered here this morning who might be struggling with what it means to understand your love or to accept your love. 
with those who, who, need, who still feel a need to find another way to feel right with you. Lord, we, it's hard. It's hard for us to think that you chose to pay the price of our sins in the blood of Christ. It's more than we can take in and understand without your help. We need your help to help us understand just how much you've loved us and how much what Jesus did was sufficient. It was everything. There is no way to earn it. It is just a gift. Lord, enlarge our hearts and the understanding in our minds so that we can see the depth of it, so that we can see the full sufficiency of it, and that we can see how silly every other thing we try to do to ease our conscience is. Lord, we ask that you would spur us on as a church to fulfill your love, to fulfill your law with the kind of love that you have saved us for. Lord, we know that we are often tempted to take shortcuts on love, to give something less than the mercy you've shown us back to you or to others. We confess that it's easier to find excuses, and we thank you again that that is not what you did. Teach us to bring every sin to you so that we can experience the forgiveness that was purchased and paid for us and transform us. Lord, set us free to love others because we've first been loved by you. Father, open up our eyes to opportunities in this coming week to take hold of the love you've given to us and to show it to other people. And Lord, we thank you and we rejoice for all that went on here this weekend, that we were able to do something together as a whole church family. And Lord, I thank you for the specific reports I heard about what went on here this weekend, that it was not just an organizational success or a financial success, but that many people were, were praying with one another and many people were coming into this building and being exposed to your people and your church and your name who might not otherwise have done that. Lord, we thank you for all the ways that you were working, the ways that your spirit was moving and working and binding us together in love this last weekend. And we pray that you will give us eyes to see the opportunities to keep building on that. To keep building on that as we, as we prepare to send a missions team across the world to, to show your love in El Salvador. And as we prepare to take hold of your love and show it to our family members and our co-workers and the strangers that we meet on the road this coming week. Father, fulfill your love in us because you fulfilled it in Christ. Go with us through the week. And Lord, we look forward to all that you will do and we are careful to give you the glory for every little bit because it's only in Jesus' name that we can lay claim to these promises and pray. Amen.